Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Hi, writers. It's me, Rachel Thompson, and this is Lit Mag Love. In the Lit Mag Love podcast, I have real conversations with literary magazine editors about their writing lives and the editorial choices they make for their journals. My aim is to help you, lovely writer, discover new journals and understand what goes into the decision to accept or decline your submissions to Lit Mags. Lit Mag Love is produced by Room Magazine and by my course of the same name, Lit Mag Love. In this episode, it's my pleasure to talk with Marianne Chan and Caitlin Andrews-Rice, the poetry editor and flash fiction editor, respectively, with Split Lit Magazine. These are two editors who both collaborate in this interview and who also collaborate in their approach to editorial work. We get the goods on how their collaboration works and how it extends to the writers who submit to the journal. We also cover jealousy in art and how the poems and stories they publish need to be ready for their solo appearance. So it's a collaboration, but there's a solo show going on at the end. And we get really specific about the lengths of work in both flash and longer fiction. And the interview turns even more collaborative when they turn the mic on me and I reveal how I've shaped a new writing practice. And the two have lots to say about what has worked and what hasn't when it comes to writing consistently for them. Warning, for this episode, I had a bad throat. I had tried everything I could, different sprays and lozenges, to be able to power through the interview. However, you're going to notice I have a very different quality to my voice, a deeper tenure. So bear that in mind when you hear the interview. Here we go. So my guests today are Caitlin Andrews-Rice and Marianne Chan, and they're both editors with Split Lip Magazine. Welcome to the Lip Mag Love Podcast. Thanks Thank for having you. us. So I want to start by asking you about your, I always like to find out people's origin stories as writers. So what's the first book that you each read that made you fall in love with the craft of writing? Uh, Marianne, I kind of had a powwow about this and how hard it is to think of the first book, but I actually came up with two. One is a children's book that my dad used to read me called Miss Susie, which is about a squirrel who's kicked out of her house and in a tree. And she moves into a dollhouse and she makes friends with these toy soldiers and it's the most heartwarming, lovely story, but I learned to read by reading that book because I read it so much. I memorized it. And I think that that's the first time I fell in love with storytelling. And I am really interested in relationships between unusual people. And I still write about that kind of thing today. So I think that that book really made me uh, appreciate what storytelling can do. And then the other one is As I Lay Dying uh, by Faulkner. And I think that that really instilled in me a love of voice because it features so many 
points of view and I love to write with voice. So I can't pinpoint one book, but you know, I probably could tell you 20 if we had more time, but those are a few. I think that for me, um, I didn't start thinking about poetry uh, very critically until undergrad. And um, so in terms of thinking about poetry and what a poem is, I think Frank O'Hara's lunch poems really excited me when I was uh, in college. I think it totally changed the way that I thought about poetry. And um, I remember when I first read it, I didn't understand it. I just remember thinking like, oh, Ave Maria, how is this a poem? Um, but I just enjoyed the book so much, um, all of his observations. He just made poetry so light and easy and ordinary and observational and also kind of like bright and enticing and happy. And I always just think of that book as a happy book whenever I feel like I'm in a poetry slump, I pick it up and I read a few poems, a few lines from it. Um, he also just did a lot of stuff with poetry that I wasn't aware that you could do. Um, he, he, for example, in A Step Away From Them, um, he uses the word hum colored. It's a hyphenated word, hum hyphen colored, um, to describe taxi cabs. And I just like had never seen that before and it really amazed me. Um, and he also just did a lot of interesting things with, with line breaks that I wasn't uh, doing at the time. And so I kind of experimented with that after reading Lunch Poems. Um, so related to that, I'm just wondering, you're both writers. So how did you become a writer? How did you think about the metier of being a writer from a young age? I know, Caitlin, you're talking about that book, m Making You Fall in Love with Story. When did you realize you could write stories? First of all, I will say that I resisted being a writer. I wanted to be an actress and Marianne and I have talked about this at length and I thought I was going to go to Juilliard and I was going to be a famous actress but I was not a very good actress my talent was with words I just it came so easy to me when I was a kid I didn't think it was something I should pursue uh, but the, my town library um, had like a writing contest in the summers so you could basically create your own storybook and I wrote one about aliens who had come down to participate in the Olympics. Oh, you did? That's so great. <laughs> <laughs> of course I did. And I won. I won a, the first prize and I won a desk. And that was like this wooden desk made by this guy in the town. And I felt like the most important person. They put my picture on the front of the paper. And I thought like, this is, I can be famous this way. As an adult, I realized it's not, you know, the same thing <laughs> being a writer, but I think that that's when the bug hit. And then it's been that way ever since. That is so funny because when I uh, was a kid, I was in third grade and there was this young authors contest and my my boyfriend at the time, we were both eight oh. years old, uh, wrote this collaborative book with his best friend, Theo. Um, my boyfriend's name was Corbin, by the way. Corbin, hello, if you're listening. <laughs> but uh, we wrote this book called Slimy Dragon Demons. And it was about this demon that would sit up in the tree. So um, when these kids would walk home from school, um, they would see this slimy dragon demon. And I think that it ended up being nice at the end of the book. I can't exactly, I can't remember how it ended, but it was sort of a similar thing where I felt like, oh, I won this, I, I, I'm going to win this uh, Young Authors Award and this is going to make me like a brilliant writer and I'm going to be a writer when I grow up. Um, so that was my entryway into, I think, being a writer. But also I did theater when I was in high school and undergrad too. And I think that that was a huge entry point for me in terms of thinking about poetry. I think that when I first started writing poems, I was thinking about them in terms of monologues. Um, and so the first poem that I wrote in undergrad was a monologue about, from the voice of my, my grandmother. 
and and I and it wasn't a poem and it wasn't very good and I think that it was because I was sort of writing it like uh, like a like it would be a part of a scene or something um, but I think that uh, acting is kind of like a writing or reading practice because not only are you reading a script and interpreting it and and putting on a play but you're also kind of thinking about the characters backstories and thinking about you know, subtext and interiority. And I, I really think that doing a lot of theater in undergrad helped me kind of understand rhythm and musicality and so on. So I, I thought that that was really, really helpful to me as a writer. Oh, I love that insight. Yeah. And I, I also like what, Caitlin, what you said about things that come easy that we take for granted, that you're, mm-hmm. not, you know, have a natural gift for writing. Um, I, I hate to say that it sounds, it doesn't always come easy. I didn't mean it to sound flippant, but I think it was a skill I had that I didn't realize was a really big deal. And everyone around me, my teachers, everyone, my parents, were they were encouraging me to be kind of pursue it. And I'm like, well, it's not that big of a deal because I can just do it. You know, so I think that that's something that's important, especially for teachers, like keep nurturing people. Since becoming editors, what has being an editor taught you about your own writing? What, how has it informed your own writing? Well, I have a, a few answers to this. One, I think it's taught me the importance of keeping a reader's attention. I don't think I appreciated how many things an editor is reading, just poems, stories, whatever it may be, and they're reading it on their computer. Uh, You have to keep their attention because it's so easy to click away from the screen that you're reading it on and then come back to it. And if you don't keep someone's attention for, you know, however many minutes it takes to get through the story, I think that that's a bad sign that maybe the story isn't working. So it's kind of taught me the importance of maintaining the energy of a story all the way through. Uh, And then I think it's given me patience to realize that a lot of people send out things before they're ready. Uh, We see a lot of stories that are great, but not quite there. And so I think if people spent a few months revising, they might have a story that was easily accepted by a magazine. It's just that they you know, I feel the itch all the time. I finish a story. I think it's wonderful. I want to send it out. And so I do. But then, you know, it's not perfect yet. So I think being an editor has made me see how important revision is to making a story work. And it's also hard to know when it's done. But I think when you're sick of the story, you've read it so many times, and you can't possibly edit a single thing more from it, then you're done. Time to send it out. But if you go through and you notice a thing or here or there, it's not quite working, then it's probably not ready. How about for you, Marianne? Yeah, so um, to add to that, I, I, I agree. I, and I think we see a lot of good work in our submittable cues um, craft-wise, especially, I mean, I'm, I'm only reading poems. And so I, I see poems with wonderful lines and great images. And, um, and if I had read the poem maybe in a collection of poetry, then I would feel like, oh yeah, I'm content with this. This is good. Um, but because we have, for example, our online issue, we only publish one piece per genre per month. Um, I'm often saying to myself, is this piece, is this piece uh, strong enough or wild enough to kind of stand as a representative of our genre this month? Um, so the poem is kind of going up on stage alone and like doing a solo up there. And so I kind of want to make sure that it's, it's an amazing poem. And so I think working as an editor has made me ask myself similar questions about my own work. So I, I'll read a poem that I just finished reading and I'll ask myself, um, would I publish this if I, if it landed in my queue? And if not, why not? Um, and it sort of helped me to think about ways to make 
I think like Caitlin said, um, to make the poem kind of stand out, to, to grab the, the, the editor's attention. And it's really hard and it's something that I still struggle with, but I think that I think more critically about my work now, um, working with Splitlip for, uh, for about a year and a half now, I think I'm, I'm a little bit better um, of a reader and I can kind of look at my work more object- objectively. Let's talk a bit about collaboration since you're collaborating on this interview. And I know Splitlip is also collaborating with Indiana Review, looking for collaborative work written by two or more authors or single author work that seriously considers the theme of collaboration. So how did this particular idea come about? So Indiana Review, who we love, and a few of us have been published uh, there, they reached out to us because every um, spring they do a folio, which is like an insert into their print issue of the last one was about technology in the future. Um, and so they, they have a different theme every year. And they reached out to us about possibly collaborating where the work would be featured in their print issue and then also on our website. Uh, so it was really exciting to us because we think of Splitlip like this giant collaboration. It's like my little family, even though we never see each other in person. Um, sometimes on the screen we do, but you know we don't all work in the same spot. So it's just an amazing thing. We've been able to work together and make this magazine happen the way we have. And so for Indiana Review, who we've all admired to reach out to us, which has been really exciting. And then now we've sort of meshed um, teams with them. And so we're working with their editors and we're going to have some collaborative meetings and we're going to have um, a reading at AWP in March together. So it's just really exciting. Nice. And, and have you as creators been involved in collaborations? Um, yeah. So I always think of collaboration in different ways. Like there are very various levels to collaborations. Um, and I, during my MFA, I was imitating everyone. I was writing like Frank O'Hara, like I mentioned earlier, Caroline Kaiser, William Carlos Williams, Garrett Hongo, and I always considered that sort of a collaborative process, imitation. Um, But Mm -hmm. then I did more direct collaborations with a couple of friends of mine from my MFA. Um, One of them was, uh, we spent a whole month uh, writing poems in form, so sonnets, sestinas, villanelles, and then we kind of just wrote them and then sent them to each other back and forth. And it wasn't sort of like a direct collaboration where we were affecting each other's work, but just just doing that and doing it every day and reading each other's work kind of um, made it so that they were all kind of coming together and influencing each other. And so um, that's one. And then another one was uh, a friend of mine wrote uh, poetry letters to one another. So they were kind of like epistles and um, but they were in verse. It it was kind of interesting because a lot of things because we had to write a a poetry letter to each other every day. And so a lot of things from our day were kind of just seeping in because writing every day is kind of hard. It's kind of hard to find the inspiration. And so altogether, it kind of just like is like a jumble of what we did that month and our reactions to each other's projects and, and habits and so on. Yeah. So those are a couple of collaborations that I worked on. And we, we actually should say that some of what Marianne's talking about, um, we're creating some prompts for the collaborative issue we're doing with Indiana Review, and some of them are inspired by Marianne's experience doing collaborative poetry, which I think, I am not a poet, but I, I love the idea of collaborating in that way, and I'm trying to think of how to translate it. Uh, Marianne and I were even talking, like, how can we do it together? Because I think collaboration is really wonderful because writing can be very lonely. Often it's me in my house by myself, and I don't see another human until my family comes home. So I think it's really (laughs) wonderful to be like, oh, I'm not alone in this process. There's other people out there struggling. So I think that's part of the inspiration for the collaborative issue as well. 
Nice. And so I want to turn our attention to submissions to Split Lip. And I'm just wondering what your current slush acceptance rate is. So I looked, it's between two and 3% uh, because every genre is a little different. Um, so somewhere in that range. Is that for web or for print? Um, yes. Yeah, so the, that's one thing that throws off the, so we, it's, we print our print issue once a year. We put out one issue. Our next one will be coming out in March of this year. And so it's a little skewed because sometimes we solicit for um, the print issue. So, but you know, that's the, you know, a good range for people to have in mind of what our acceptance rate is like. I wondered when you're talking about being different per genre, is there one genre you can identify that you have a higher acceptance rate for? So we have a higher acceptance rate for memoir because we get fewer submissions, but they're not often very good. So when a good memoir comes in, we're really likely to accept it, if that makes sense. <laughs> so totally. memoir is a tricky genre. Not a lot of people write it uh, because it's not an essay. So it's just a different kind of form. And then, you know, people are, I'm afraid to write memoir. I don't like to do it. I don't like to write about myself. I want to be able to make things up so I can understand why we get fewer submissions for that. And actually, it was a question I was testing a hypothesis a bit because I've, that's what I've heard across the board from most journals. Oh, really? So. That's interesting. interesting. Caitlin, I read that you, when we're talking really specifically about submissions, that you prefer not to have more submissions with overtly political work. And I know you're going to clarify what, what you mean by that. And then also um, stories about dead children. So are there any other subjects you'd like writers to avoid when submitting work to Split Lip? I realize when I say these things that it sounds like, don't ever send us a story with a dead child. I, that sounds horrible. First of all, we just see a lot of stories about people who have lost babies or people who lose their children. And I can emphasize, you know, empathize with how traumatic that experience must be it's hard to write something new we have never seen someone if you did a new take on that story then send it to us maybe it's in a weird form or maybe you know there there's something like else going on in the world that's kind of off kilter you know it's just often when we get things like that it just seems like we've seen many of them so it's hard for us to be excited and it kind of goes back to what Marianne was saying like if something is going to be the only piece from that genre for that month it has to stand alone and it's harder if it seems like it's something we've seen all over the place in every literary magazine. Um, as far as political work, I think we see a lot of work, especially about Trump and they're mm. more satirical and they feel very much like I wrote this at a rant and don't get me wrong. I'm angry all the time too, but it's hard to kind of publish something like that. You know, it's just, you don't have enough distance from it. So I, I, of course, we'd love to publish political work, and we often publish poetry that is political in nature, I think, but it's just about the way in which the author is approaching the political subject. Um, so those are the two things that come to mind, but I also would say sometimes we see a lot of marriages gone bad, which is kind of in the lumped in there with the dead babies thing, um, just because it's hard to write in original story about that but that's not to say it couldn't be done and I love people who like to break the rules and try new things so I think people should only write about things that excite them so if that's the thing they want to write about that's what they should write about yeah it's that's a consistent advice across the board from editors too it's like we have things that we see too much of but if you'd have an original take we'll take right. it that also sounds so hard to quantify like what is an original take but I think that that you know, sometimes if people can experiment with form, something Marianne and I talk about all the time is like, 
constraints often help you be more creative. Maybe your story is written like a recipe. I'm just throwing out an idea. And that somehow the rules of writing in this form kind of opens you up to exploring these topics that everyone's seen in a new way. Yeah. And and speaking of form, I had another question for you, Caitlin, Mm -hmm. about um, flash versus versus longer works of short, like short fiction still. Mm -hmm. And I know you have a split lip FAQ every once in a while, hashtag SL FAQ. And you recently said that you often leave the comment on a submission that this story is not flash and then vice versa. You also receive many stories that need to be shorter. Mm. So what are the ways that writers can tell they've veered too far one way or the other? This is, I have a two part answer for flash. I think a lot of the times what happens is sometimes the concept is too big and I, I like to write concept heavy stories. So I have a really hard time with flash. So I kind of can understand how this happens. We actually had a submission recently um, where Maureen Langlos and I, um, she's our flash editor, we're debating it. And the concept was so great. It was hilarious. It was really interesting, but it was so big for the flash. And I think the story was only 450 words or something like that. And I just said, we can't accept it because it doesn't work in this form, but tell the author that if she wants to expand it, she should send it back to us because it just needs room to breathe. It was, you know, it was, there were all these things going on. There was a character who needed to buy something from the store and the store had all these weird things happening in it. And it just felt like it was so much to be happening in 450 words. So that's an example of where maybe flash can go wrong um, in terms of length. And it's just about asking yourself, like, do I have enough room to explore the story? Um, And as far as stories being too long, I think that's, a huge problem that we see and it's something I struggle with too but often stories could cut 200 words without losing any of the meaning and I think something writers could do and this is something I try to do is read from beginning to end and decide where the energy is kind of lagging and if you feel like at any point the energy is lagging that's what has to go or maybe you tweak the language to make easier to digest but often stories are too long and especially if you want to print online um, I found that things under 2,000 words are better than we'll we'll accept longer work for the internet but it's easier for people to read in one sitting things that are in the 2,000 to 2,500 range. Yeah I, I teach students on revision and often the ones that have the students who have these 4,000 word stories I'm always like can you just just try to see what happens if you cut mm-hmm. it down inevitably <laughs> something yeah. great comes out of that I think I think also that requires time like back to the idea of patience because often I will have a story and then I'll look back at it in a couple months and I'll realize how much fluff is in there that wasn't needed and so I think that that's something that just you know you get better at it with practice and sometimes I I think of flash as being quite akin to poetry in that it's distilling a moment often. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is exactly. And that's a lot of times why uh, bigger concepts don't necessarily work. And we do, I tend to like flash that does have a story more than just, there's a lot of flash that's almost like prose poetry. Uh, we, well, well, we'll publish that if we get one that's great. We often do publish flash that has, you know, a somewhat of a beginning, middle, and end, but you're right, and it's more of a moment. It's like I compare it to maybe you're watching a short film versus a story or a longer movie um, or even a scene within a longer movie. And so I, I do want to segue into poetry submissions too for Split Lip. And Marianne, you write on the Split Lip website that you're looking to read poems 
that, as you put it, I wish I had written poems that make me want to clutch my collar and scream. And I've heard the sentiment from other poetry editors really particularly. And I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about jealousy as a positive <laughs> propelling force in our writing lives, if you feel that's true. And then how, I'm wondering also, how do you use this for fuel for both your own work as an editor and a poet? It's so funny because I, I, I don't know if I thought of that note as uh, being about jealousy as much as it is about admiration, because sometimes I read, okay, we can talk about jealousy first. So yeah, I think that it's, I think that when you read, uh, when I read a poem, sometimes I think, oh yeah, I really wish that I had written this and it, it, and it can be exciting and inspiring. I think most of the time it's exciting and inspiring to me. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, wow, I wish I could steal that. And I think it just comes from the desire to possess something that's beautiful. Um, I think often, for example, like when I see an amazing dancer or a musician on stage, I sometimes want to covet their talent. And sometimes I, I even think, you know, if I started playing the clarinet tomorrow and dedicated my life to it, I'd be so good when I'm 50 or something. You know, like I just get like really excited about the idea of being really amazing at something, even though I know it's not possible. Um, but I just wanted to note that I, I wrote that what I'm looking for uh, paragraph when I first started at Split Lip, and that was about a year and a half ago now. And I would probably tweak that now because the truth is, or I think the truth is that um, we want to publish a wide variety of styles and voices and experiences in our magazine. And to say that I kind of wanted to write some of the poems that we publish would be false because a lot of the poems could only be written by that particular poet, I think. Um, and that's actually what we want. Um, we want poems that are unique and, and specific enough to that, to the writer that wrote them. And I, and I think that that's a good thing. So I think I might take that back. I might tweak that in the future. But yeah, I, I like that you asked a question about it. And in that long list, which, which you may be tweaking as well, you, you give, as I said, a long list of what you're looking for in poems, mm -hmm. but then you go on to say, don't worry so much about what I'm looking for in, in a poetry submission. Send us pieces that make us rethink what we're looking for, and we'll go from there. So how often does reading poetry submissions make you rethink what you're looking for and in, in what ways? Um, yeah, I think it happens all the time. In terms of form, for example, we we recently published Anastasia Stelsi's uh, poems, Shorthand Flirtationships for the 21st, or 21st Century Edition and Shorthand Courtships 21st Century Edition. Um, and these poems were written, were all written in shorthand. And I never thought we would publish anything like that. And I totally love the poems. Uh, they're just really unusual and fun. And I loved how the shorthand made me want to slow down while reading the lines. Um, I just thought that it was a really unique uh, structure and a unique um, constraint. We also published a poem by Mobilia Meekers for our print issue, um, which we are to this day obsessed with, and it's called Tinderella on Fire. And um, her writing was almost essayistic, and uh, it touched on so many different ideas and images, and. I was just kind of amazed at how it kind of expanded and, and contracted. Yeah, I'd never seen a poem like that before and I thought it was amazing. And so, yeah, it happens It happens all the time. We read submissions and, and we see something that's unique and we want to publish it. We'll take a short sponsor break and when we return, we're going to hear some specifics about how you can collaborate, i.e. publish, with Split Lip. Split 
Lit Mag Love is presented by Lit Mag Love, an online course to help you publish in journals. Get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. The course is full of strategy, but I think what distinguishes this course from other writing programs is its heart. There's a lot of love and support in the warm community of writers who take the course. Course registration opens next month. To get more details and updates when the course opens, head on over to litmaglove.com. So I want to talk even more about collaboration, about your editorial practices. And it sounds like a wonderful collaboration, like you spread out geographically, but you have a variety of editors. And it's really apparent that you're mindful about diversity in your submissions, too, and then amplifying of voices that haven't been heard. Are there areas where you want to improve on this or some intentionality that you have around that? Um, was something we talk about a lot because it's not an easy, you know, it's not an easy thing to do and it's not an easy thing to fix if you have a problem with publishing diverse voices. But I, one thing that we acknowledge is that you can't just sit around and hope that it happens. So I think we try to be as proactive as we can and whether that's through marketing our magazine to different groups, not just, you know, the standard academia literary magazine world, but also people who are writing outside of academia, uh, whether that's reaching out to writers we love or discovering new writers. Um, we use a thing called Slack, S-L-A-C-K, which is a like a digital workspace. That's how we communicate. And it's kind of a game changer in terms of allowing us to communicate in quote unquote real time because we're all over the country in different time zones, but it's changed the way we are productive. It's been amazing. Um, it also allows us to just talk all day long, <laughs> but um, we have uh, a place on there where we kind of try to discover new voices. And we, we were just, Mary and I were talking about how we need to do this more because I'm always reading literary magazines and, and the idea is to find someone we've never read before that we're really excited about and reach out to them. And so I think a lot of it is about being creative about ways that we can do that in the future. And you've identified age as something that goes unnoticed when reading submissions, and I think rightly so, and that at Split Lip, you've published everyone from retirees to high school students. And I'm asking this out of a need for room, too, because this, I feel, is an area where room, in spite of our deliberate practice of opening up to more voices, sometimes falls short. And in particular, we don't publish a lot of the voices of older women or genderqueer writers. So how has Split Lip managed to do this? And is there anything you can teach us about that? Uh, thank you for saying that. It makes me feel really good because the age thing is particularly important to me. Because I think sometimes even when I'm reading work um, in literary magazines, it's often about the same age range. Like you don't read about high school students or you don't read about people who are retired, people who are out of the workforce. I just academia tends to be skew younger in terms of who's running literary magazines. So um, I, that's my own passion. So it makes me feel good to hear that people notice that. We, we just published a woman, Lorelai Glazer, who is 90 years old. Um, and Ray Shea, who was our memoir editor, he was the one who found the piece. And he's like, I didn't even know what her age was. I just read it. And then after I realized what her age was. So part of what we do is we're really open to new voices. As Marianne said, it's our mission basically to discover new voices, to maybe publish things that other magazines wouldn't publish. Um, so I think that allows us to publish like a wide range of ages and people coming from all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds. And we just have a lot of conversations about what we're publishing. And I think this is one of the reasons we don't read submissions blindly because we do like to look at cover letters and understand where the person's coming from. And, you know, that helps us make decisions sometimes. 
Yeah, it's often a misconception with journals around diversity sometimes is, oh, we read everything blindly. And mm -hmm. so therefore, you know, the best pieces are going to be published. But Yeah, because I think a lot of it's confronting your own bias. Um, so for me, I like a particular kind of story, but I at Splitlib, we're really trying to publish all kinds of things that are very unique. And that might not be what I like to write, just kind of like what Marianne was saying. It's not a poem she would write, but it's a poem she loves. So um, I think cover letters are important for kind of understanding the background of where this author is coming from. How about Marianne, your, about your approach to poetry? Um, in terms of reading submissions? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I try my best to to read a lot outside of the submission queue and solicit writers who I think are doing really interesting things and publish writers who are um, doing things that we haven't published yet. Um, so I always tell our readers that we're trying to kind of create this sort of like polyphonic environment with our magazine because we, we don't want to just publish one, one voice or like the same type of poem over and over again. Um, and so I, I do my best to try to, um, like Caitlin said, uh, read, read other journals and find new writers that way. Um, and then also I, I do just the same as Caitlin, I read the cover letters to, to kind of find out a little bit more about where they're coming from. Um, also, if I, I have uh, like a lot of writer friends who, who give me recommendations all the time and I try to take those recommendations and run with them and, and send emails to writers who um, are doing a lot of interesting stuff. I want to ask you each to describe a couple of works that you were thrilled to be able to publish. And how about we start with you, Marianne? Um, yeah. So like I mentioned, I was really, um, I really loved publishing Mobilia Meeker's poem in our print issue. She also read at our reading and um, mm -hmm. she was just, it was just absolutely beautiful. And we were really glad to have her. Um, recently, we published W. Todd Kaneko's uh, poem, Elegy for Mr. Spock. And I absolutely loved that poem, um, was really thrilled to have him as a contributor. Um, and the poem was, was extremely moving. It was about his, um, his relationship with his dad who passed away and also his, relationship, his, his thoughts about death. And we were really happy to publish him. Yeah, I mean, Bilia Meeker's poem is definitely up there. Marianne, I had already talked about this and I think I, we love the poem from the minute we read it, but then when she read it aloud at our reading, it was like this moment of pure joy that I haven't experienced mm -hmm. very often where I just felt like this is, I always imagined I'd be involved in this world, but when you see art being performed like that, it was like a life-changing moment. It sounds really dramatic, but <laughs> it's, it just made it feel like what we're doing matters, at least to me, and her poem is so incredibly good and interesting and like Marianne said touches on all these different things and she has a, t a gift and it's like a true joy to be able to discover people with this gift. Um, another person I was thinking of um, is Hannah Rosenheimer. It's called Coming Clean and Hannah is an undergraduate and so speaking of age. The voice is just so good and hilarious and the story is so poignant and uh, it's just again a joy to be able to discover someone like this who hasn't really published widely. Um, and it, it's exciting for us. I love it. And I, I love the way that you managed to also address the real lit mag love in the, in the room too, <laughs> around it's why we do it. And, and it's sometimes a common misconception even around writers. You think, oh, well, they just want to reject my work. And there's this mm -hmm. real love for, for writers and discovering new voices. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, I, that's a huge part of another thing that we are really big into 
trying to create a supportive community. And so it's not just for the people we publish, it's also for the people who participate, whether it's reading or coming to our readings. Like I want it to feel like this big family. Uh, so often the writing world can be, feel really scary because you're trying to get your work accepted, you're getting rejected, it just feels really miserable. And there should be a lot of joy to it. Cause like you said, that's why we do it, not to reject people and make people feel bad. So once someone submits their work to Split Lip and you've accepted it, what should writers expect um, in terms of developmental suggestions or other edits that you might make with their work? So it depends on the genre. Um, we make a lot of edits in, in flash and fiction. Often, often if we're making going to make edits, the writer knows before we accept the piece. Um, so we'll say, we love this, but we have a a few comments, are you open to that? And then we kind of feel out whether or not they are open to it. Because often a writer has a vision that is not matching up with ours, which is fine. But then we want to save everyone the, the time of going through the whole process. Um, so a lot, we're very transparent about what a writer can expect in terms of like, if we're going to change a lot of things, they'll know up front. Um, and then we book pretty far out. So it might be a six months to a year before you appear and we do a proofreading round and everyone will see a proof of the um, issue whether that's in print or online and they have the opportunity to make any last minute changes so we're always in contact so there's a pretty consistent process that we go through with for accepted work yeah in terms of poetry um, I'm pretty hands-off we usually accept poems that need very minimal edits mm -hmm. um, and we we have liked a poem before that needed a lot of editing um, but usually it's more on the line level and if, if there are grammatical mistakes in the poem and um, and they don't seem intentional then we go ahead and fix that but other than that we don't really do that much edits when it comes to poetry. I would say that's the same with room too there's something about poetry that's Either it's done or it's not done. Kind of yeah, weird. it is yeah. weird how poetry, I was just thinking like it's the only genre like that. Um, before we wrap up, I'm wondering what's next for Split Lip and then for each of you too. Well, for Split Lip, I feel like I said to someone, September is like everything just starts happening because we are working on our next print issue, which we're really excited about. Uh, we're printing double this year. So that's also really exciting to me because my love is print. I love print journals. And for us to be able to do this and have people want to buy it has been really rewarding. So we're working on that. Um, we're preparing for AWP. We have the collaborative issue with Indiana Review. So it just feels like poetry yeah, we contest. Have the poetry, yeah, we have a poetry contest going on right now, open until uh, October 1st with Paige Lewis as our judge. So there's so mm -hmm. many great things happening with Split Lip. It's kind of hard to even think about myself. <laughs> we're very busy. But I personally, I'm, I'm working on short stories and a novel, which I never thought I would say out loud, and uh, keep keeping the, the joy, <laughs> the faith. And Marianne, how about for you? Yeah, um, I have a I have a book coming out in 2020, and so I'm, I'm working on that, working on edits for that, and also um, trying to think about maybe adding poems to the collection, and so I'm working on new poems and thinking about maybe starting a new project um, but all of that is kind of up in the air right now. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to like take time out every day to sit down and write at least an hour. Um, if I can do that, then I feel like a success. I actually have, there's a, this is a great tip for your listeners. There's a thing online called 750words.com. It's basically, it costs $5 a month and it's just like this website that tracks when you've written 750 words and I do it every day and it, it keeps like a streak like you've gotten a five-day streak and it says congratulations and I feel really good when I've gotten five 
days in a row. That's amazing. Um, okay, I've accomplished something for the day. If I do nothing else with writing, then that's something. And, that's and it's collaboration. That's collaboration with yes, technology. Yes, and it's an amazing thing. So something that I like. It's a little trick of the trade. <laughs> wow, yeah, I totally need that. I'm going to check it out. <laughs> it's great. I, it's very simple. So when you see it, you're going to be like, are you sure? But it's just because it's motivating to keep the words all there and then see how many days you've done it. I think you'll really like it. Thanks. Nice. How's your writing yeah. life going, Rachel? <laughs> well, this is the thing. I mean, talking to editors, it's often is, it's sort of, we're focused on the journals and other things or pro other projects and it's hard sometimes to do the daily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So myself, I am just returning to a writing practice that I'm forced myself to map out this summer to yes. really have a dedicated practice. So it's a week, weekdays only. I have small kids. Yeah. So I don't, I just Me decided too. weekends, forget about it. I'm just doing it on the weekdays. I think it's important to you to give yourself a break, like a day off because your brain needs to reset. Like I was thinking, oh, I have to write every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, but I wasn't producing anything good. Doing it every day is really great. Not maybe not seven days, but five, you know, doing it consistently, it is like any kind of practice. Like I do a lot of yoga and I think it's very similar in that way. Like the longer you're away from yoga, the harder it is to get back into it. Same thing goes for writing. Yeah. And then with the daily practice, like I found the first weeks, it was like nothing great was coming out, but I just mm -hmm. knew I was reshaping those muscles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yoga practice is apt. I think for me, it's hard to like get past the three hour mark. Like I have to, if I, if I do two, I, I try to do two hours a day. And then if, um, if I go past that, then I start to feel a little like funky or something. And then, I, and then the next day it kind of like, it gets, I get, I feel a little cloudy a couple of days after that. So I try my yeah, best to just like stick to the, stick to the one to two hour writing. Yeah. Writing day. So yeah. Sometimes I read about these fake authors who write all day or, you know, from nine to two and then they take a break and I don't. I'm not that type of person. So I guess everyone has their own process. Right. I think so. And there's been this dominant narrative that they're right every day and you have to write this many hours. And so people put that on themselves. But I, that's why right. I love hearing from people who have practices that work for them and sustainable practices too, because I, I could probably write for several hours a day for a couple of weeks and then I'd be done. Right. <laughs> not exactly. working for me. So, well, thank you so much. What, what can I tell our listeners about how to follow or connect with you? What's the best way? Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're very, SplitLive is very active on Twitter and we try to be very accessible um, on Twitter as editors. And I think that that is also one way we try to create a community. So I'm happy to answer questions. People can tweet at me or DM me or I just like talking with writers. So <laughs> I'm happy to chat anytime. We're on Twitter all day long. <laughs> yeah. Can you say your Twitter handles and I'll make sure they're in the show notes too? Yeah, I'm the legit K-A-R. And mine's at Marianne L. Chan. It'll be up on litbaglovepodcast.com. Perfect. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Rachel. I love your podcast. Thanks. So what can we glean from this interview with Marianne Chan and Caitlin Andrews-Rice from Split Lip? I think it's important to note that recurring trend of how they are looking for a wide variety of styles and voices and experiences, poems that can only be written by that particular poet is how Marianne Chan put it. And she also was talking about the other genres in their, in their publication and in fact mentioned that when she's reading a poem as the poetry editor, she's asking herself, can this poem stand on its own? Is it a solo act? And it might be a poem that would be fine within a larger anthology, 
be perfectly acceptable for that. But in this case, the pressure is really on for each submission to Split Lips online journal because they only publish one piece in each genre per month. And Caitlin clarified something that we hear often, that there are some subjects that magazines see too much of and they understandably get tired of submissions that seem, for example, overly political. The other area that they had difficulty with or they're seeing too much of is about losing a baby. So it's imperative for you to try an original take when you're writing in these ways. She says it's just often when we get things like that, it seems that we've seen many of them. So it's hard for us to be excited. And it kind of goes back to what Marianne was saying, like if something is going to be the only piece from that genre for the month, it has to stand alone. Now, some of the stuff that they're seeing about Trump and politics comes out like an angry rant, as Caitlin said. And she says that, sure, she's angry too. But right now, we might not have enough distance from this era to write about it yet. And Caitlin, as flash editor at Split Lip, often sees flash pieces where a concept is too big. So it's a specific note for people who are writing flash, that if the concept is too big, is it extending beyond the borders of this flash piece? It might be suited for longer fiction. On the flip side, for longer stories, she says often the story she reads can be cut by 200 words without losing any of the meaning. And she has a trick for this. She says, read from beginning to end and decide where the energy is kind of lagging. If you feel at any point that the energy is lagging, that's where, that's what has to go. So for their online edition, she's found it's easier for people to read 2,000 to 2,500 words in one sitting. So consider that when you're considering your length. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Literature, Art, and Feminism since 1975, and by my course, Lit Mag Love. It's an online course to get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. Sound editing for this episode is done by Micah Lemiski. And I'm your host, Rachel Thompson. If you want to give us some love in the form of a review wherever you get your podcast, we'd love that. And it really helps writers discover the podcast. You can find us online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at litmaglove. Thanks for writing and reading literature. And thanks for listening to litmaglove. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.